This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. What do you do when no one else is watching? What do you do that makes you happy for no reason at all? What are you obsessed with? I'm Leslie Arfin, and I'm a writer, but I'm also a dancer, a painter, a vapor, a dollhouse enthusiast, and basically just an overall hobbyist. My podcast, Filling the Void, is all about what other people are fanatically into. We talk about hobbies, even if you don't have one. Listen to Filling the Void on Tuesdays on the Erios Network and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, well, it's another Books of the Year podcast. I know you've been waiting for a while, uh, been doing other stuff. We've just had half an hour of uh, computer fun and games with Tom Bradby, who's our special guest today, uh, to talk about his brand new book, Yesterday's Spy, which means that we start this conversation at a high level of anxiety and, and fury. I think, <laughs> Tom, hello. There is no fury like computer fury. It's I know. just... Uh, Technology is so brilliant when it works and drives you. It's like it's like it's like the, that moment when we were all working at home when some broadband provider decided to dig up the road outside your house and said, "Oh, you'll be offline for six hours," and a week later you're still <laughs> offline and you're on your seventy third call to customer service and you're losing the will to uh, carry on. Yeah, I imagine you know you having reported on the front line of a over many years you know if you can't get a link to the satellite or something you go okay well it's kind of par for the course but just three people speaking to each other on a podcast should be so much easier but 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 that's the iron law of tv actually or one of them you know you you go to beijing no problem you go live to Kabul, no problem you go live to ukraine no problem even in the middle uh, of war raging around you try and go live to croydon forget it it's just <laughs> never gonna work and you kind of sometimes think what does the audience make of this you know they watch you nightly they they know you can go live uh to a war zone why can't you go live to croydon anyway there's an there's some kind of answer there's some kind of algorithm i think before we start tom i should say uh, congratulations to you and your uh team uh, at itn for the bafta uh that you won just a few days ago for uh for, was it news coverage that was that was the category yeah, and uh, it was our brilliant team in America with all the support in London. Robert Moore obviously was the only reporter in the entire world to get into the Capitol building that day. Yeah. So any footage you've seen of that is Robert Moore uh, and his team. And they did an amazing job, actually. And it's quite something to scoop every single American media organization. But he's a, he's a, he's a brilliant reporter. Obviously, when I joined ITN, 
32 years ago. He was the sort of very, very young Moscow correspondent and he was a bit of an inspiration to me. I thought, well, if he can make it that quickly, then there's a surely a chance for me. And he, he's been a brilliant reporter all his career. And I think it's sort of typical of him to just sort of keep going and go on in there. He's also a very, perhaps you saw his speech, he's a very modest man. He's somebody who's much... This phrase is overused, but he's much beloved by his colleagues. He's almost universally liked, I would say, and he he gave great tribute to everyone else, which is typical of him. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned uh, Moscow there as part of uh, what he's been up to, which is kind of a tag nicely uh, laid up for uh, a conversation about uh, not the new Cold War, though it may be that we end up there, but the old Cold War, the first Cold War. Yesterday's spies, Tom's... Uh, brand new novel. Matt is going to describe the cover here, which is a fabulous spy cover. Matt, go on. Yes, so we've got uh, we've got um, gathering storm clouds over the um, top half of the book, and then a dark silhouette of a man uh, with a yes, he he's wearing a hat, but we can also spot a uh, gun in his left hand, and then bottom bottom right. We have well. I'm going to guess it's a mosque in Tehran, in in Iran, uh, Tom. But but you'll tell us exactly what that building is in the in the bottom right of the book. Okay, so that's uh, that's nicely uh, teed up this conversation. Then yesterday's spy, Tom. Who is yesterday's spy? Yesterday's spy is Harry Tower, a man who's been a, a senior SAS officer for most of his working life, and he is getting older. He's getting more cynical. He's getting more jaded and he's lost his son in the middle of this incredibly tumultuous period in Iranian history when the CIA, backed by MI6 and the British and American governments, is staging a coup basically to get rid of Mossadegh, who was, I guess, the equivalent to Gandhi in some ways, a nationalist leader who was you know, demanding the best for his people. And in his terms, that meant a better deal for his oil, because we were basically extracting all Iranian oil and not giving the Iranians very much money for it. When he doesn't get a bit better deal, he nationalizes Anglo-Iranian, the uh, British-owned oil company. We're furious. Uh, we, we sort of tried to get the world to impose various forms of sanctions. Truman, when he was in the White House, wasn't very interested. But when Eisenhower takes over, you've got a sort of Cold War warrior who's much more inclined with his new team at the CIA and state to view what's going on in Tehran in terms of Cold War rivalry. So they stage a coup uh, in order to get rid of Mossadegh and install a government much more to their liking. And in the midst of all this, Harry Tower's son, who's a foreign correspondent for The Guardian, has gone missing so he is looking for his son, I think it's fair to say, in more ways than one. They're pretty estranged. Uh, he lost his wife to suicide not long before. Harry, Sean, his son, disappeared off to Tehran not long after that. They don't have a good relationship. So it's in one sense, it's a physical search for his son. But in one sense, it's a kind of moral and, uh, uh, you know, search for his son in more meaningful, soulful ways, I guess. What's fascinating about the story, Tom, is that we're familiar with spy stories from the Cold War and this period, but I don't think I've ever read um, a book which is based in Iran and based in the on the Iranian coup of 1953. I think I might have known a couple of facts about it, but that's it. Why did why did you want to to write about Iran and 1953? Well, firstly, I was a history student at Edinburgh University, and in my last year, the course I did was the CIA from the Second World War to the modern day, which was the most amazing course 
to do for a whole bunch of reasons, because obviously you're looking at the way the modern world was shaped through the Cold War and actually out the end of the Cold War. So that, that was kind of fascinating. And I just became particularly obsessed with this period. One, because I think it's one of the most understudied and mis- misunderstood periods of British imperial history. You know, we would never have kept... I don't think the imperial fleet on the high seas without Iranian oil. And here we are, you know, Mossadegh winning power, nationalizing the company and us conspiring to get rid of a democratically elected leader because he was doing things we didn't like. Now, you could argue that, you know, maybe we did genuinely fear to some degree he would fall under Soviet influence. But it's just an extraordinarily understudied period because, of course, what happens is in the process, we give the Shah absolute power, which he abused, which led directly to the Iranian revolution, which gets us to where we are today. So it's one of those fascinating and really clear cases of the law of unintended consequences to me. That's, yes, my first principal interest in it. But the second is the the guy who ran the CIA coup that features in the book in real life is a guy called Kermit Roosevelt. He was very pleased with himself about it. He wrote a book, in fact, called Counter Coup, which details, you know, absolutely plainly what he did, you know, arriving in Tehran, you know, full of daring do with a suitcase full of money, in fact, many suitcases full of money, to bribe people using SIS, MI6 contacts, because, of course, all Brits had been expelled. So we helped him set up the coup, but the Americans ran it. And from his point of view, it went brilliantly. You know, they managed to persuade people out onto the streets with heavy bribery, and they got rid of Mossadegh and gave the Shah effectively absolute power. They then went on to roll that kind of coup out all over the world, Guatemala, Vietnam, you know, uh, Chile, ultimately. So it was an extraordinarily important event in a whole load of ways that I think is really understudied. And that's why I was, I've always wanted to write a book there. And then kind of the story, uh, you know, of Harry looking for his son just came to me and it seemed perfect. You've touched, um, Tom, on um, Anglo-Iranian um, oil and the importance of it to to Britain. And I think one of your characters talks about how effectively that was helping to prop up Britain during two world wars. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? Because obviously this is an area you've studied, but just the importance of that oil in Iran to Britain that has that led to them uh, being involved in, you know, uh, trying to to, to, de- to depose a leader in that country. Well, essentially, we managed to get, originally a banker managed to get a concession from a very corrupt royal dynasty at the time in Iran to bring out oil. And for a long time, it didn't get very far. And they were, in fact, on the cusp, literally, of, you know, within days or certainly weeks of giving up the search for oil when they finally struck it. And what they discovered was that there was this incredibly plentiful supply of oil. And naturally, since they paid the Iranians very little for it, they got it out very cheaply. Now, if you've got an enormous military machine, including huge numbers of ships that become very quickly dependent on oil consumption as the century progresses, you really need that oil. You need that cheap supply of oil. And Churchill, you know, I think at one stage calls it a gift from fairyland, this cheap oil. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why after the war, he was very keen for this to continue. And I think almost any objective person who studied this would think that we really gave the Iranians a very poor deal for this oil. And that's what happens with Mossadegh. You know, after the war, there's nationalist sentiment sweeping the world. He basically says, this is ridiculous. My country is dirt poor. 
its principal resource is oil. You're not giving us any, you know, virtually no meaningful income from it. We want a better deal. And when he didn't get a better deal out of Anglo-Iranian, he na- he just said, well, that's it. I'm going to nationalize it. And it was it was an extraordinary thing to do because the Iranians didn't have the technical ability to get the oil out. And so people would say to him, but you won't be able to get any money from your oil because it's going to grind to a halt. And he said, well, better that than to be abused in this way. We must have a better deal. And so really, the country descended into dire poverty in the short term as a result of this. But we just wouldn't give way. And Mossadegh took his case to the UN and gave this incredibly impassioned speeches. Uh, And certainly Truman, I think, to some degree, supported the, the idea of nationalist sentiment. But Eisenhower, as I said, was a different proposition. The Cold War was was really underway by then. And he was inclined to view all this uh, as a sort of something that was in the crosshairs of the Cold War, rather than, I think, how we might tend to look at it a bit more today, which was, you know, a nationalist leader genuinely trying to do the best for his country. There's a very striking scene early on uh, in the book, Tom, where, I mean, because Churchill is in it. And it's quite, it's quite clear, just sort of illuminating what you've just told us, that Churchill thinks of this oil as British oil. It's our oil, never mind the fact that it's not in the UK territory and it's coming out of uh, Iran. He thinks it's British oil. Well, to some extent, I suppose his point is, well, we paid to explore and extract it. So, you know, this concession was granted. Therefore, you know, it, it is our oil in the same in the same way that a company today might say, well, we we did this deal. You might not like the deal, but we did this deal. You agreed to it. And so now you're going to have to stick by it, whether you like it or not. Now, of course, the deal was done many, many years before. It was then amended, to be fair. But like we were basically not willing to give the Iranians... I think what anyone today looking at it would agree was a was a fair deal. And so Churchill might have had a bit of a point in terms of the historic contribution, you know, a British company had made to the extraction of this oil. But I think most sort of neutral observers, certainly outside of the British Empire at the time, including, as I said, many people in the American administration uh, pre Eisenhower tended to view this as, look, the British being pretty unreasonable. You, you, you mentioned, you, you've told us about Harry Tower, you've told us about his son, Sean, who's, who's gone missing. When Harry gets uh, to Tehran, uh, he, he finds that Sean has a girlfriend called Shahnaz. And, it, it, and Harry spends a lot of this uh, adventure, this journey, uh, with his son's girlfriend. And that struck me as a very interesting pairing, as a kind of a double act to take us through this story. The father with the son's girlfriend. It's a whole different dynamic to what we're used to, I think. I love the idea of it because, as you say, it's an unusual dynamic. And in one sense, he, he does. He arrives in Tehran not even knowing his son has a girlfriend, and she sort of pops up, and she's, you know, so that's the first surprise because obviously his son hasn't told him anything about his life there. Harry keeps writing his son letters and not getting a reply, and he discovers that in most cases his son hasn't even opened them. And I, I think really what he's doing is discovering his son through his son's girlfriend, which is kind of an interesting prism. But you've also got this juxtaposition. I do think Harry's a character that I probably would only have written at 55. I don't think I would have written him at 25. You know, he's somebody who had a very defined political ideology in his youth. He's now views the world, 
I don't think necessarily jaded is quite the right word, but he certainly doesn't view life through the simple prism that he did in his 20s. And in fact, I, I guess I would argue the key passage in the book is this, you know, on the way to looking for his son, they go down um, to, a, to a morgue at one point where they think they're going to find the body. And hopefully it's kind of quite a shocking scene because you think, oh my God, he's literally about to find his son dead. And it turns out to immense relief not to be his son. And then on the way back, they go to stay at her family kind of farm in the middle of nowhere. And they have this long conversation on the terrace and they're talking about the nature of political ideology. And he basically says, look, you know, political ideals are what, you know, political ideology is what prevents us from exercising our humanity and our empathy to connect with other people. And she says, but aren't political ideals what give us our humanity? And he says, no, you know, we're all seeking for some kind of logic and purpose in life. And whether you opt for religion or political ideology, it's a kind of catch-all justification for the meaning of existence. And he's really talking about himself because it's he does feel that it's prevented him from exercising in his humanity in a way that he now looks back on his life that he really wishes he's done. And I think that's his explanation for why his relationship with his son isn't what it could be. She, meanwhile, is passionately believing in Mossadegh and his cause and she's an idealist, and why wouldn't she be? And that juxtaposition and contrast is, I guess, what drives the book. I'm interested, Tom, in how we talk about intelligence agencies in fiction at the moment. Because obviously, as, as we've said, secret intelligence services here with, with Harry Tower and obviously the CIA involved as well. But also the KGB make an appearance um, uh, in the book. And listen, in, in fiction, we have all we've we've basically become used to KGB is all-knowing all powerful able to do whatever it wants the invisible hand ma- making you know coups happen or uh, secretly funneling money that that kind of thing and yet in real life um the FSB the the, the successor to the KGB certainly if we look at current events, has been less than all-powerful, less than all-knowing. In fact, their intelligence from Ukraine was was clearly flawed, or uh, certainly the, the, the Russian invasion would be going far worse than it is now. I just wonder whether... When you're when you're writing and, and certainly when you're looking at the KGB and how you you write about those, is there something in the back of your mind that says, do you know what these these guys aren't quite as competent and as I say all knowing and all powerful as perhaps we've portrayed them in the past? I think that's certainly true. And like we're looking at the KGB versus the CIA through a his you know obviously through the lens of history now right certainly in terms of you're looking at the old cold war and what conclusions can you reasonably draw and i think the truth is it's a bit of a mixed bag on both sides you know yes the cia did have things that it considered successes in its own terms and i make no moral judgment i'm talking about entirely in the terms that it set out for itself so you know as i said it argued that the tehran coup was a tremendous success kermit roosevelt went back he was fated you know, it argued that other coups that it pulled off, like in Chile against Allende, was a success because it, you know, it gave power to a regime that was more, quotes, you know, aligned with US interests. Now, we might view these things in a moral context totally differently today, but purely in terms of the way the CIA was judging itself at the time, you could argue that was effective. But then let's just look at the Vietnam War. I mean, that was one long catastrophic intelligence failure, one might argue. You know, 
um, the American public and to some extent the American government went through that entire cat catastrophic war that killed you know millions of Vietnamese, fifty eight thousand Americans, trying to tell the American public that it could be won and it, it couldn't. You know, I think almost all historians would view it as the wrong war in the wrong place at the wrong time now and a classic example of it. So that has to go down as a truly epic intelligence failure. And the KGB had its own versions of all of that. Some things that were pretty successful in its own terms, some things that really weren't successful. I think nowadays, you know, you could look at the Iraq war as a failure of SIS and the CIA, the whole you know, question of weapons of mass destruction, we probably don't need to rehearse, but I think everyone knows that. But there again, look at the predictions of the invasion of Ukraine. From where I'm standing, that looks like a tremendous CIA, SIS intelligence success. On the other side, I think we are seeing that the FSB is probably not a very effective organization. And I think that is part in large part because Russia's a kleptocracy. And I'm not saying old Soviet Russia was a better regime in human rights terms. But I think if you're looking at it from the perspective of now, it looks a bit more effective in its own terms. I think the trouble is, is that so much of the Russian state is really only intent on stealing money, it seems to me. And that doesn't make for very effective organisations. How did you, Tom, go about drawing and painting the pictures of 1950s Tehran? You know, the, the, the street map, the, what it smelt like, the gangs and the organisations. Where did, where did you go to get most of that information? Because it's, it's a very vivid picture that you paint. It was really hard because obviously 1950s Iran has pretty much disappeared. So a lot of the stuff you would normally use is like if you go to New York, I said a book there, you know, there's so much that's still there from 20s New York. I, I set a novel in St. Petersburg, The White Russian on the Eve of Revolution. And not only can you go to St. Petersburg and all the buildings are the same, which is quite evocative, but also people who, you know, lived through that period were a world that were aware they'd lived through a world that had disappeared. So they went and wrote about it. Lots of people wrote memoirs from kind of grand dukes to diplomats. And you could go and read those memoirs. And they literally described sort of what happened when you walked down this street or that street, because it had all disappeared. Whereas it was much, much harder. So I, I did what I always do. I looked, I read as many memoirs as I could. And there was there were quite a lot of memoirs, actually, which were were, were really useful. I read all the political stuff. There was quite a lot written about the coup, so that was relatively good. And then I did a lot of kind of poring over maps and trying to sort of make sense of things, looking at newsreel footage, looking at photographs. And it was a lot of fun, I must say. I really enjoy the process of trying to conjure up a place in time. As we've discussed, I found it such a fascinating place in time. I really, really would have loved to have been there as a journalist. And I think quite a lot of what I guess fairly obviously drives me. You know, I said I did that course on the CIA my final year at university, and I, I left just thinking, oh, I, that's what I want. I want a, a frontline place in history. I want to be able to be there witnessing the great events of my lifetime. And I find I bring exactly those kind of drivers to my fiction. It's like, oh, what would it have been like to be there? And I really love recreating that, something that is a massively appealing part of the job for me. You mentioned earlier, uh, Tom, about the fact that Harry Tower's wife um, has died. She's committed suicide and 
you write about the anxiety and depression that she has. Why? Why was that an important part of the story as you were putting this jigsaw together? As I said a little earlier, when we were discussing that passage in the book, where where he's having that really quite key debate with, with Shannaz about you know political ideology versus humanity and. I don't want to give it away, but anyone who reads the book will see that Harry's life journey has been based around the fact that he committed himself to a course of action when he was young that he now regrets. And one of the things he feels is that he wasn't really ever able to be himself as a result of this with his wife. And so naturally his wife's decline into poor mental health and eventually suicide is something he blames himself for now in reality whether that would or wouldn't have been different if he'd been a different person is something that we can debate but he certainly feels that that's a key contributor to her decline and ultimately suicide and he carries the the burden of that guilt it's obviously been a massive contributor to his estrangement from his son so it's actually been doubly impactful for him and that felt like a really key part of the story I guess I wanted Harry's reflection on his youth not merely to be an intellectual one but to be an emotional one it's not just that he feels he made some wrong decisions along the way he feels that there was an unbelievably high human cost of that and he feels extremely guilty about it and is seeking redemption I think in more ways than one Is that something else that you wouldn't have written when you were 25 that you are writing now? One of the things that's happened in the last five or six years is I've had one of the country's more well-publicized breakdowns. And one of the things that obviously results from that, or certainly in my case resulted from it, you know, I was signed off presenting News at 10 for three months. It was in all the papers. That was, you know, pretty tricky. And it's a big deal, obviously, to be you know, I had insomnia for those that don't know. It got so bad, I just couldn't function. I couldn't go to work. Eventually, I went to see a very good psychiatrist who just signed me off work for three months. And then you go through the process of rebooting yourself. But obviously, one of the first things you do is go on a massively quick, very driven re-education program because you think, how the hell did I get here? How can I have got myself to the point where I can't get out of bed and I can't function as an ordinary human being? And obviously, that's a learning curve. And part of that learning is about yourself and your genetics and your upbringing and all that stuff. But also part of it is just about human psychology, how it works, how it interacts with the human body and how we're driven as human beings. And it, it, I guess it's inevitable that that would, in fact, you know, have a really big impact on, on how you write a novel because you're writing it from a very different perspective than you would have written 30 years ago. And what's quite interesting about this is I started, I've written this trilogy of novels, which I think we've discussed before about, you know, contemporary novels about an MI6 spy who appears to have the intelligence that the person who's about to become prime minister and then does become prime minister is a Russian spy. And those were super contemporary. And if you read those novels, it's clear that Kate, the lead character, is in the first novel, which I had, which I wrote just before my breakdown, it's fairly obvious to me when I look at it now that she's on the cusp of having some kind of breakdown, which is really weird when you think about it, because I was writing that novel with no insight to that's what was about to happen to me. And then in the second novel, she's, you know, she's had the breakdown. And of course, by then, the time I was writing it, I'd had a breakdown too. But what's 
I suppose, interesting to me looking back at this novel, was I originally wrote this novel before the contemporary series. And then I said to the publishers, look, I've had this very contemporary idea. Can we get that out first? Which they agreed to. And in the meantime, I'd sold the film rights to this and I'd written the film script first with the producers and then with the director. And in the end, Bill, my editor, said to me, well, I've read the film script. I mean, not to say that you should or you shouldn't, but do you want to have another go at the novel? And I said, you know, actually, I think I would. So this is a really weird novel in one sense. I wrote the book, then I wrote the film, then I went back and rewrote the book. And by the time I was rewriting the book, obviously, you know, it's quite you know, a long way into the sort of, I'm, you know, I guess I'm now looking back at my period of mental ill health. And yes, I think Harry, Harry changed quite a lot from the original novel to the one that you would now read. And that is as a direct result of what happened to me. Uh, Tom Bradby's book is Yesterday's Spy. There'll be more with Tom when he takes the, uh, the Q&A, which will be available very shortly. Uh, but Tom, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. And thanks for talking to us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, We have many episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.